A new massive organized caravan of migrants storming. There's a border emergency in Texas tonight. Joe Biden has done absolutely nothing. What I saw was a high level of logistical organization. Welcome to Border Wars, the first bilingual podcast that goes beyond the border. No, it's all good. It'll, there's so many little breaks and stuff. I'll, yeah. Are you speaking? No. Okay. No, I'll just slide back up to the room and chill. So how's the sheriff doing? He's, he's busy. Did he come up with you? Yeah, he's here. I, I Was he on the same flight? Yeah, I was showing off. I got to, I got to baggage claim. I was like, all right, y'all, I got my ride here. <laughs> he's got to get my ride. The, the podcast is here. And they were like, you have your own ride? I was like, yeah, I got to go, guys. Getting makeup <laughs> on the way. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, deuces, gentlemen. So, so they're over there scrambling for an Uber, and I'm like, Kylie's got her warm towel and champagne. And- <laughs> That's the way to go. Well, well, welcome to the Border Wars podcast. This is the number one podcast of the Americas, a new podcast from the Center for a Secure Free Society. And I say this is the number one podcast because we're going to have folks, uh, including the folks that are sitting next to me, but we're going to have folks that aren't just academic professionals. We're all going to have academic conversations, but we're going to have conversations with people that have real world experience, real world experience in law enforcement, real world experience in the military, real world experience on the ground working all these issues. And as you could tell with the title of the podcast, no, no, no issue I think is more important right now than borders. And I don't just mean borders in the terms of the U.S. southern border. That's obviously what we're going to talk about. But I mean borders throughout the world and definitely throughout the Western Hemisphere. As, as everyone here knows, as some of you may know, I've traveled throughout Latin America and I could tell you our southern border is a symptom of borders throughout the Americas. And there's some really bad ones out there going down to the tribe border in South America, to the Colombian-Venezuelan border, to the Darien Gap, and obviously all the way up to our southern border. But without anything, before I get started, if you are watching us on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to our channel, like uh, this video, and hit the little bell to make, make sure you get all the notifications. And if you're listening to us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to your podcast, be sure to subscribe to our, to our podcast so you'll be able to get all the episodes. I'm going to kick this off, but I'm going to talk uh, a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. And then I want to introduce the folks that are sitting to my right and to my left. So as I was mentioning, you know, one of the things that I kind of came like just really, I don't want to say epiphany, but I had a, this thought essentially that, you know, a border to me, at least it's more than just uh, a physical barrier, uh, a, a structure an infrastructure, security authorities border in many ways to me is an identity. It's, it's what separates uh, an identity of a nation uh, and its people uh, from another nation and its people. And oftentimes that identity is, is defined by a very st- small strip of land. And I, this wasn't any clearer than when I was in Colombia and Venezuela on the border. For those that haven't seen the video, uh, watch our video. It's called Border Wars Arauca. That's the first episode uh, of a different, not the podcast of the video. But what I saw there was like Colombia and Venezuela have a lot in common. They were They were the same country at one point in the 17th century. Uh, they have the same, in some sense, shared culture, re- religion, language, but it's clearly different when you're on the Venezuelan side of that border and then you come to the Colombian side of that border. And that difference isn't just difference of uh, food and difference of, uh, uh, you know, different, different clothing. It's, it's a real difference in the sense of freedom. You know, when you're in Venezuela, you don't have any freedom and the people know that. 
uh, you step aside to the Columbia, not to say that Columbia you know, has thriving in, in, in all its respects, but it has, obviously it's a lot freer of a country than, than Venezuela. And so this is kind of where I want to start this conversation. And I'm going to start with uh, the fine gentleman to my left, Derek. It's good to see you. Thank you, Joe. It's good to be here. Likewise. And, and Derek, what I want to ask you a little bit is, is that big question, like what does the border mean to you? Now, Derek, also tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you have a long career in the DEA. Uh, you've done a lot of uh, advice to high-ranking policy members. We testified before Congress before. Um, tell us first, what does the border mean to you? And tell us a little bit about your background. So I was in the DEA 28 years. My father was in the DEA 30 years. My brother died in Afghanistan in the Air Force in the pararescue. So I have a lot of passion for America and our public safety and national security. And without secure border, you don't have any of that. You don't have security in your country and you don't have uh, the freedoms that we have. And unfortunately, right now, it's a wide open border. Our country's getting inundated with poisonous fentanyl that's yeah. killing Americans at record levels. And so for me, you have to have a strong border. It's the foundation for everything in this country and the freedom. And we, we just have to secure the border. It's, that's just, it's that simple. Derek, in your, in your time, when you were in the, in the DEA, did you work border issues at all? Or, I mean, you're working international narcotics. Right, but everything we did involved the border because the Mexican cartels have been the biggest drug threat to this country for many years. And the border has always been the focal point, right? And whether it's the Southwest border, the Northern border, with some of the narco terrorists that have come into the country from Canada. And then, you know, even like our ports, right? Around the yeah. country in Florida with the cargo, in, in, in Houston, Texas with the drugs that are coming in at record levels. So yeah, the borders are very important to everything that we did in the DEA and especially at the Special Operations Division, you know, synchronizing the efforts with 30 agencies from so not just law enforcement, but the Department of Defense, the intel community, and our counterparts around the world. Well, we're going to get back to that. But speaking of Department of Defense, let me go to the gentleman to my right, uh, good friend Sergio de la Peña, top Pentagon official during the Trump administration for all of the Western Hemisphere. So you've covered a lot of borders in, in, your, in your time, but also a retired colonel from the U.S. Army. So same, same as I spoke with Derek, what, what does the border mean to you? Also, you can also give us a little bit about yourself and your career so that the audience can get to know you. Well, certainly, I think the border, what is defines a nation, and there's a significant difference between nations. Though we belong to a very uh, prosperous and collaborative hemisphere where we are a neighborhood, it still defines the difference between one nation state and another. And I think that's really at the heart of it all because there's a significant difference between what the United States is and any other country in the world. I do believe that there is a uniqueness to the United States that nobody else can can match. For example, in my case, I arrived in this country uh, having lived in Mexico in a house with dirt floors, with no running water, no electricity, and got here legally when I was five years old. And I had to learn English the hard way. I flunked the first grade because I, I couldn't see very well and I didn't speak English. And, but yet within one generation, uh, I was able to spend 30 years in the Army, started out as a cotton picker, uh, I've done every kind of manual labor you can imagine. And uh, 30 years in the Army, another uh, few years as a defense consultant and contractor. Uh, I spent four years in the Pentagon. I was blessed to work for the Trump administration. Uh, I had the opportunity to run for governor of Virginia. And so how, what other country in the world is there where you can come to this nation and not speak a word of English 
And within one generation, you can apply for the job held by Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. That's what the United States is all about. And we stand to lose that if we continue to leave the borders open. Because once you allow nationhood uh, to whoever wants to come in, pretty sure, pretty soon you don't have a nation state. Yeah. So that's what it means to me. It's really well, important. I think probably no one here uh, probably knows what you're saying uh, more than David, because he, David's from Texas. So he's very close to the border. Uh, David's originally from Florida, but he currently resides in Texas. And he's seeing a lot of that, what you're talking about, basically overflowing the border. And I think Texas probably got the blunt of it compared to all the other border states. Uh, but David, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first of all, thank you for coming all the way up from Texas. I know the flight wasn't easy, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. He was also a background in the Air Force counterintelligence. Yeah, I, I ended up in Texas through the military. So I, I grew up in Tampa, Florida. Uh, another border where drugs poured in when I was growing up. I thought everybody grew up with the say, say no to drugs campaign. I thought it was common. Um, and uh, and then joined the Air Force. I was with the Air Force Office of Special Investigation, primarily in the intelligence field. I worked a little bit in narcotics and otherwise. And, uh, and then I uh, ended up in Texas, and that's where I separated. And, you know, through a, a Course journey ended up uh, with the Tarrant County Sheriff's Office now as a chief running the intelligence and technology divisions, and uh, and yeah, you're right. The the stuff we're seeing, what's what often is mistaken with the border, when people hear about stuff coming over the border in Texas, they assume that it stays in the border region, and the border merely facilitates the transfer of yeah. narcotics and other things. So when it, it's not trite to say when you hear politicians and otherwise other people saying uh, every state is a border state, every town is a border town. That's the idea is that most of what comes over the border doesn't stay on the border. It keeps going. Yeah, so Dallas, Fort Worth, where we're at, that that's, we do take the brunt of it because it, uh, um, it's where it stays um, or, and, or is distributed. So what I like to start, so now we got to know everybody, and what I like to start is I want to start a little bit with policy. We're going to talk about drug trafficking, obviously. I think that's uh, many of you guys' specialty. Uh, we're going to talk about terrorism, because I think there's a serious concern with terrorist networks uh, fusing uh, through migrant channels up into the border or through the border. Uh, we're going to talk about mass migration, because I think that's a phenomenon that's, that's uh, rising. Uh, but I want to start this by talking a little bit about policy. Because so 1.7 million, 1.7 plus, a million plus encounters and apprehensions on the U.S. southern border. That's a record number since 1960 when they began documenting these, these, these numbers. And they say encounters and apprehensions because it's not the individual. It could be the same individual multiple times. But uh, nonetheless, it still taxes the capacity that we have at the border. So sometimes I get I, ha I get in this conversation with friends and, you know, I, I run in libertarian circles. So I get a lot of my libertarian friends who are like, Joseph, what's the big deal? Why do you why are you complain? Because at the end of the day, we need population growth. We need more people in the United States. We need more migrants to come in. And I and I understand that I actually actually got my degree in economics. So I understand the economic arguments about more people have more innovation. More innovation leads to more goods and services, but not all at the same time. I mean, there's a real capacity issue in the border. The last I heard, and correct you guys correct me if I'm wrong, if you have a fresher data, but the last I heard was our border has about the capacity to uh, withhold about 1,500 uh, 1, encounters and apprehensions on any given day. Uh, if you look at that 1.7 million plus number, we're talking about up to 7,000 
in the four times the capacity uh, that, that we have. So that's why you're hearing all these stories about shuttling migrants from the border to New York or to Michigan or to some other uh, place. So what I want to start with is because we dealt with it. We saw this already in 2019 uh, or actually late 2018 to 2019 and the Trump administration did two clear policies that really made sure that this didn't get out of hand. Now, I don't think they were a permanent fix, but they were at least a, a temporary solution to begin to wrestle with this migration phenomenon that's happening. The first was what they call the, it was MPP, but they call it colloquially as the remain in Mexico policy, right? And then the second, which I think was linked to this, was the third party agreements that we had with Central America. So the first question I want to ask, and I'm going to ask this to you, to, to you, Sergio, first, but anyone could jump in if you have thoughts on this, is since you served in the Trump administration, you know, what did it mean when the Biden administration, or President Biden himself, January 2020, I and mean, he just, no, 2021, I'm sorry, January 2021, he just comes into office and he rescinds those two policies. Well, it was like an, an open invitation. As a matter of fact, if you look at some of the Central American migrants that were coming up, they had t-shirts that said uh, they were all on, on the Biden team. So what that basically said is we're not going to stop you at the border and you're getting an invitation to come to the United States. As a matter of fact, having gone to the border um, and we, we've talked to different people, in some cases, some of the more bold immigrants would come up and demand their rights because they've been invited as guests to the United States. There was one case that I spoke with uh, a, a Texas Highway Patrol woman, and she was telling me that there was a gentleman that they were coaxing off a railroad car. And uh, when he was up at the top of the car, they were telling him to get down, and he was using every explicative under the sun, saying, hey, I'm in the United States now. I have rights. I'm not, I'm not going to come down. They had to go. They, they got him down eventually, and they put him in cuffs and, and took him in. But his whole thing was, you can't do this to me because I have my rights. So this is the kind of bold uh, action that some of these guys take once they come here. I also got a chance to see Venezuelans that were coming across the border with uh, the roller bags. <laughs> yeah, they call, with, they, they call them Versace migrants. With, with clean <laughs> shoes. No, serious. They, they, come, they come in uh, flights. They don't check in anywhere. They go straight with their overhead luggage, yep. take it out of the luggage department and go rolling all the way to the border. <laughs> and they come out, you know, the Central Americans have their big bags and their things in nylon bags. And so you're getting all sorts of people like this. I, I, I spoke about a gentleman that I met from Argentina and I asked him, how'd you get here? He said, well, you know, I took a flight from Buenos Aires. I came to Cancun, Cancun, I took a bus. I, they, I tried at three different entry points into, into the United States and they tell me, no, go to Del Rio because that's where you can get in the easiest and he said, I went to Del Rio, walked across the border, came to this open lot. There was CBP buses waiting to pick me up to take me to end process. And now I'm headed up to Tennessee. And oh, by the way, there was an NGO that was providing assistance to people to come across. They had phone banks. They had little lunch boxes. They had transportation arranged so that they could go from there to either the bus station or the airport. And uh, they were just coming in, and it was a it was an assembly line process. Nobody was stopping. Uh, they were, uh, by the way, this gentleman had had the pipes connected for dialysis because he told me that he wanted to come to Tennessee to die at the country of his preference. So this gentleman was not going to work. He was going to. Oh, by the way, he also had his medical records. So this is just one example. But there were pregnant women there. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the one of the issues that that was occurring at the time, this was in July. Uh, they they were giving us the the data on how many people had drowned trying to cross the river, and sometimes they get unlucky and they'd fall in the river and they drown. Uh, there was one case where there was this this lady from Haiti who was pregnant with carrying twins. So three people died in one incident. And those incidents were increasing at that time. This was in July. And since then, the thing has just exploded. So these are the kind of dynamics that you're seeing at play at the border. So, I mean, to what you're saying, I think we also saw that this year with the Haitians. Because, uh, the, you know, for those that don't know, we've had a record number of Haitians that have come to the U.S. border. Now, Haitians have been migrating from Haiti since a long time. Haiti's uh, the victim of con- of bad policies, but is also the victim of natural disasters, had multiple earthquakes, has had uh, hurricanes. And so Haiti's always had a bunch of problems. And there's been Haitian migration throughout the Latin America for, for as long as I can remember. But what I remember hearing this story because uh, the Haitians that were coming to the border were actually naturalized uh, Chileans and Brazilian uh, uh, nationals. So they would come in with Brazilian or or Chilean identities uh, and then they would get documented as such. But then you clearly would tell that's from Haiti. Haiti. Well, then when you ask them, you say, well, well, how long were you in Brazil or Chile? You had been there quite a long time to be able to get uh, nationality said, oh, we were there about for seven years, eight years. A lot of them left. And when was the earthquake? I think it was like 2000. Oh, this was the way that the Haitians got there was based on the Manusta mission that started in 2004. Yeah, exactly. We, because the Brazilians were in charge of that mission and most of the people for that peacekeeping mission were out of Latin America. So, and there was because, an earthquake too, I think. What was it? What, well, the earthquake came in 2010. 2010 that's right. Yeah. But, but before that, because of Manusta. And, and setting up the peacekeeping mission, a lot of these countries that had observers there were also allowing these these migrants to come to their country. So a lot of them ended up in Chile, they ended up in Brazil, they ended up in Ecuador, they ended up in Colombia. Right. Exactly. So the question then was, why did you choose now to come to the U.S. border? I mean, you had a decent life in Chile, Brazil, which have you know, have problems, but they, they have relative stability, those countries. And they said, because we heard that the border was open. Like, we, we thought this, this is the time, this is the now, this is the opportunity we were waiting for. And so there's a whole effort, uh, I think, of um, messaging that happens with this. But let, let me shift gears a little bit because I want to talk to Derek. Uh, Derek, let me talk to you because it's not just migrants, right, that's coming across this border. You mentioned when, when, when you opened about uh, the fentanyl, and that's the other big crisis. We have, you know, obviously a crisis of apprehensions and individuals and our capacities clogged down. But with that capacity, there's that term, what they call it, gotaways. Yeah, and that that's something that's underreported. Nobody wants to talk about gotaways. Depends on who you listen to. There's five hundred to six hundred thousand a year that are running into the country, and they're very smart because the cartels are orchestrating all of these uh, migrants, uh, the flows into America. So they'll they'll flood the zone. So they'll send fifty migrants to the border patrol, and when border patrols consume with the processing and the migrant care. Then they'll go up a half a mile and run across with the high-value targets that are coming from China and Russia, the Middle East, and potential terrorist countries, right? There's, these guys, we don't know who they are. My fear is, uh, you know, we have five to 600,000 a year coming in here. We have no idea who sent them, what are they coming here for, what's their motives, what's their intent. They obviously don't want to be apprehended by Border Patrol. But the biggest issue that I have is our brave men and women at the Border Patrol, they can't do their job. Instead of doing the border security, they're doing migrant care all day. Mm. And this is insanity. And, you know, perception's reality. When the president says the border's closed, right, or the uh, secretary of Homeland Security, the border's closed, everyone in the world knows the border's wide open. That's why they're coming. They're coming for the freebies. They're coming for the babies. They can have the babies. My thing is keep the thugs and the bugs and the drugs out of America. 
that needs to be America first policies, which Trump had going on pretty, really strong, keeping us all safe. But the fentanyl, this is a chemical weapon attack. People don't want to hear that. It sounds a little dramatic, but let's talk about well, it. Break that down. Break, break down what is fentanyl for those that don't really understand. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that we started seeing it heavily coming in from China around 2012. We started seeing out of the blue, people dying all over America. We didn't know what it was. The autopsy reports were coming back as this powerful synthetic opioid. But then it got really scary when we started seeing the movement to the cartels. Mm. So the Chinese labs in Wuhan and around the world were making this very pure fentanyl, selling it to the cartels for $5,000 a kilogram. Is this Ch Chinese mafia or what is this? China well, it's a good question. I mean, it's Chinese criminal organizations. In my personal opinion, it's all orchestrated by the, you know, the Communist Party of China because they control everything. Yeah, you can't, that's what I was going to say that because you can't really move money out of China without going through their banking system, which right. is controlled by the Communist exactly. Party. Exactly. So I'll get to that quickly because here's the thing. It started out with the direct uh, exports from China to America and mail services through the dark web, the internet. But then the Chinese got smart because the Trump administration put a lot of pressure on them and they started controlling fentanyl analogs. Then they started forming the alliance and the partnership with the cartels. And the mm -hmm. cartels are about making money. So if they can get this cheap, pure opioid that's very addictive and they don't have to grow the, you know, the poppy plants and go through the conversion and worry about the weather and the, all the different you know, issues down there in Mexico, it was much simpler. The problem is they didn't know what they were doing and they're pushing poison into our country and these young kids are dying. Last year, in a 12-month period, end in June, 101,000 dead. That's 277 a day. We've never had in the history, and I have experts here, so correct me, especially you. Right. Correct me on this. Have we ever had a terrorist organization that's, that's killed 100,000 Americans a year? No. We've, we've had a million loss since 99. Right. And this is why I've been pushing for like three or four years. I testified in Congress in Ohio. I've testified in U.S. Congress. Declare the cartels as terrorists. Put the best and brightest from the intel community, Department of Defense, law enforcement. Shut down these production labs and work with the Mexicans. We're not, we're not going to go in there and fight a war in, in their country. But we have technology to destroy the production labs. And by the way, we have to shut down the chemicals that are flowing to the ports in Mexico. One last thing on this. What people don't realize is that the cartels are relying on the Chinese transnational criminals for the money laundering services. So the money and the, and the, and the chemicals are coming from the Chinese criminal networks. These are really important pieces because without the chemicals, without the money, you can't make the, the poison. No, so let, let, let's go into that a little bit. And, and then I'm gonna go with David too, because I wanna hear you, because you're seeing this in, in Texas. Um, we could, we, I understand why the, why the drug traffickers are doing this, right? This, right. Is, this is just platform making, they're getting their money, they're exactly. doing their thing. Maybe they're, you know, some are diversifying from cocaine over to fentanyl because it's more lucrative. You don't have to pr produce it as much as exactly. you do, uh, you know, in the coca crops. The Chinese criminal organizations, now obviously they're money laundering facilitators. They obviously run through banking networks. But I think what we're alluding to is how much does the Chinese Communist Party know about this? How much are they facilitating? Are they turning a blind eye? Are they actually opening access? Because you know, as you know, money as we all know, money laundering goes oftentimes through trade, right? They they use trade systems yeah. to be able to launder money because you have cleaning in a sense, dirty money, trying right. to make it a clean money. So, how much did the Chinese Communist Party? And if so, let's let's speculate. If the, if the Chinese Communist Party is is essentially facilitating this criminal convergence between Chinese criminal organizations and Mexican drug cartels, 
what is the strategic aim? What are, what is the goal here? Okay, I'm not an expert on China mm-hmm. or Communist Party of mm-hmm. China, but I've talked to a lot of experts. I've done some research. This is part of unrestricted warfare. If they can destabilize America with poisonous drugs, they're going to hurt their adversary. Big USA is going to be hurt. And they're sitting back now. They're using the Mexican cartels as a proxy to destroy our future generation. So our future doctors, lawyers, bus drivers, school teachers, pilots, they're dying at record levels. I work with thousands of families every day. I make photo collages of all these dead kids on a regular basis. So if I was a betting man, and I can't prove this in court, the Chinese Communist Party, they 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 switch some of their their, you know, their techniques. They put more onus on the Mexican cartels to get their fingerprints on this distribution of fentanyl, but they're providing the precursor chemicals, not only for the fentanyl, but for the meth. We have record levels of meth being seized in this country. One quick seizure. In November, the Border Patrol hit a tractor trailer, 17,500 pounds of meth and 388 pounds of fentanyl. That's enough fentanyl potentially to kill 388, I'm sorry, 88 million people. One kilogram of fentanyl, which is 2.2 pounds, can potentially kill 500,000 people. It is a chemical weapon. It's a chemical weapon. And China is behind it, and we're not even talking about it. And by the way, our president recently signed two executive orders, and he actually said the drug crisis is an unusual and an extraordinary threat to the national security of this country. I was very happy to hear him say that. But there's no plan and there's nothing to back it up. I don't even think the White House people that prepared those talking points had any idea that the average person would say, then why the hell is the border wide open? If the cartels are the threat, this unusual and extraordinary threat, how can we have a wide open border? So it doesn't make sense. It's mixed messaging, just like the border's closed. No, it's open, right? People know like this is not really leadership. Leaders eliminate confusion, not create it. That's a good, that's a good point. And, and maybe with the Chinese, we, ha- we don't know for a fact that the CCP is orchestrating this. We can know by just the extension of what they have as a strategic aim in unrestricted warfare, that this would definitely fall and within Joe, that doctrine. What people don't even talk about is that their synthetic production of poison campaign started around 2008 okay. when we were getting inundated by K2 spice bath salts. And everybody in America was like, what the hell are these kids smoking the synthetic marijuana? For? Where did this come from? The labs in China. Then they switched around 2011, 2012 to the fentanyl. We, we, what, I, what I was going to say was essentially who we can say, and this is in court documents, this is in, you know, through indictments, who has a strategy of flooding the United States with narcotics. And maybe not in this case fentanyl, but this case would be cocaine, but it's the government of Venezuela. And, and this has been a, a put into different indictments that you probably worked but, but, a lot of these cases. But, but Joe, also go back to Afghanistan. Several Afghani people that we arrested, kingpins, have said selling heroin to the West is a jihad. Yeah. They understand that. This is what the bad guys understand. The Haqqani network. Yeah, yeah they exactly. understand it. Let me go to David because, they, well, one, David, you, we, you've talked a lot about Venezuela and we worked on a lot and David's published a lot of papers at, at SFS about this. But before we get into the Venezuela aspect, you know, based on what Derek's seen, and based also on what Sergio said, what are you seeing in Texas? How, how bad is this really getting in Texas? I think Texas is probably, in many ways, the front line for a lot of these problems uh, for the United States, especially when it comes to what comes through the border. Yeah, it's well, what they've already touched on. It's not pretty on the ground. It, sometimes it's hard to um, it's hard to visualize 
the concepts that we just threw out here, the number of people that have died per year from overdose deaths, it, it just, if it, it becomes hard to visualize it. So I'm glad to hear you putting together collages and things like that to represent these people because a number, uh, it becomes just uh, fade faded in the background. It becomes a statistic. And when we, we have several overdoses in the last month in our area, in our jurisdiction, and it's directly tied to fentanyl. And uh, the one thing that, that I'm trying to stress to local authorities and to local politicians in Texas is understanding that it's not merely the flood of fentanyl. That, that is the problem, but there's so much nuance within that. What, what we have seen just in the last year is even two years ago, there were specialized drug dealers that knew how to handle fentanyl. They knew how to enhance their products. So what they'll do is- well, Why are they specialized? Because there was a certain, there was a way you have to handle it. Yeah. There was the way it's applied there and there's a way you uh, put it into pills. Okay. So you pill press it and what they would do is they would enhance existing drugs. So you might take cocaine or heroin and, and literally salt bay, you know, that uh, the, the fentanyl on it to strengthen or enhance it. But there was few drug dealers that knew how to do that or were willing to do it. And what that did was it, it told users if you want to get a better high, but it could be dangerous, mm. these are the guys you want to go. So it was, if you will, regulated mm. within the drug market. What you get now is fentanyl is is everywhere, and it's so available in powdered form that anybody that wants to experiment with enhancing the drugs, I'm, and I'm talking about the most um, uh, ill-minded you know, uh, drug dealer on the corner, has been able to take fentanyl and use it to enhance drugs. I know of one instance where they knew it was a, a downer. So in, in these are the nuances when they're saying drugs, uh, they knew it was a downer. So they started mixing it with energy powder. Oh, wow. These guys had no idea what they were doing. So they were taking it, pressing it with energy powder. The idea being it'll keep you up because you got the energy in it. Uh, but it's a downer. And these, these were guys that have no concept of what this stuff is. And what happens is people start ODing. Well, nobody wants to be there when someone ODs because then they're going to get implicated in this whole distribution. So you start tracking after the overdose, what in the world was mixed with this? So what we start seeing uh, is a lot more drug cocktails and it creates an environment where people, I like to tell people that the experimentation phase of drugs is shrinking almost to an indiscernible amount, meaning mm -hmm. You could take drugs for the first time, take a pill for the first time and die. Mm. That it's that bad. So no, no more gateway. There's no exactly. And, 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 and no one, more. one, one comment on that. We all made mistakes as kids. You're supposed to learn from your mistakes, not die from your mistakes. And yeah, families it's, 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 uh, are very concerned about that. Yeah. Well, just to put it into perspective, it takes about 1200 grams of, of cocaine to, to have a lethal dose, about 200 grams of, uh, of heroin. It takes two grams to kill you if you take fentanyl. And if you take car fentanyl, it's two micrograms. And the, <clears throat> so what's happening is that here's, <clears throat> here's the uh, time for addiction from the first use of cocaine to full addiction or, or heroin. And then with, with fentanyl, you're talking about mm -hmm. a significantly reduced time. And, and uh, as was pointed out, it's also can be a lethal dose. And the thing about it is that because it's so addictive, you can mix it up with, with plant-based drugs. 
As a matter of fact, if you look at the deaths, they're significantly higher for opiates or synthetic drugs because the plant-based drugs are only now less than 30% of, 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 of deaths. Most of it is actually a mix of either plant-based drugs and, and some of these synthetic drugs, but over 50% is just uh, these synthetic drugs that are killing you. And the, the, but the, and the questions that keep coming up for, for, uh, for people in our community is why the idea is profit. So why would they lace fentanyl? Uh, it, why would they lace all the drugs with fentanyl knowing that it could kill their customers? Uh, their, yeah. their customers? And I think it's already been pointed out, and I try to stress that um, I've talked to several cartel members, and a few of them have, have said point blank, we will send whatever kills the gringo or whatever uh-huh. kills the American. They have said straight out, they said, we have narco ballads about it. It's not it. very entrepreneurial of them. Well, no, but the but you see the transition from profit to weapon. And I know the DOJ yeah, yeah. in their own press releases with Venezuela has pointed out they're using cocaine as a weapon. They're weaponizing the drug to destabilize American communities. And so I try to bridge that gap on my local level to say drugs are not merely a profit-seeking enterprise. There is a strategic value, uh, national security threat behind the narcotics. And, and I think, whereas before that was hard to fathom because, you know, marijuana, you think of it as the, as the doper and, and the, and the, the munchies and all those kind of things you may have gone through in college. And now uh, we're trying to stress that that, that is not the case. And see, one of the things that he, he hit on something that, that I wanted to elaborate on, he talked about the narco corridos, these narco ballads. If you look back at how this first started back when marijuana was the thing that came across the board. Actually, if you take it further back, it started out during prohibition because alcohol c- contraband came from Mexico because it was easy to, to just run across the border. And then from that, you started with marijuana. And then from that, you started cocaine and so forth. But if you go back and just follow the ballads, there's one that's called El Contrabando del Paso, the contraband of El Paso. And it talks about how this guy is going to end up in Leavenworth. And now there's another one that it's called the Maso. If you get a chance to hear it, it's it's by a guy by the name of Gerardo Ortiz. It really promotes this gangster uh, lifestyle. And if you look at that video, it wasn't filmed in Mexico. It was filmed somewhere in the United States. It's it's got this guy, you know, tucking a 45 in his belt, and he's got a pet lion. The pet lion means that he's got the the law under his control. So this is the kind of lifestyle that they use as a, as a recruiting poster. When in fact, most of those people that will end up taking that lifestyle end up living like a bunch of hobos, you know, crammed into a small room and under the thumb of those that are really ruthless if you don't follow the law. If you look at the cartels today, uh, there's very few that live that lifestyle, but it's one that's promoted and they do it. So they do it on the side of the distributors and then they obviously victimize all of the people that are using it on this side. And if you want to see the impacts of that, just go to some of these homeless communities in Seattle and in, in uh, California and San Francisco, Los Angeles and so forth. So the human toll of this is horrible. And if you look at the Rust Belt, that's the area that's really being impacted by this fentanyl epidemic. Let me, let me go to Derek. Derek, so what David said, you know, you're a career uh, DEA agent, DEA officer, you've led special operations, DEA. Have you seen it like this before where the cartels are not just about making money? They're also saying, you know, whatever kills the gringo. Have you seen this element before? Well, for me, I look at it as a two for one. So 
profit is always going to be at the forefront of the cartel's, you know, motive. And profit is so high now, not just from the drug trafficking, but from the migrant smuggling. And I'm not an expert. I don't have all the statistics. But if you listen to the experts, they're talking about billions of dollars. They're making so much money from moving the migrants, right? So money is flowing. And they know that this stuff is so addictive that they're accumulating so many more customers. The demand in America is so strong because when the corporate cartels dump 100 billion opioids into America from a nine-year period, 2006, 2014, and we're left operating with impunity because of the corruption in our own country from prosecution. They evaded all the prosecution, all these corporate executives, right? Well, then all these kids needed, they needed something. They go to the street. They're getting these dangerous opioids. But I would say that based on what we just talked about, it's not surprising at all. I I really have never seen that personally over the years. I've seen it with Middle Easterners. I've seen it with, you know, folks in Afghanistan, um, obviously with Hezbollah operatives. But in regards to the cartels, it's always been driven by the, the profits. And but certainly China wants to destabilize our country. So it's a two for one. You can make billions of dollars and you can kill off the Americans and you can, you know, weaken their country and destroy families and communities. So to me, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, we have a lot of enemies, unfortunately, right now, even though we're the greatest country in the world. So, you know, that what I want to bring this back to now, I want to bring this a little bit to, to this idea of weaponized drug trafficking, strategic drug trafficking, and then we'll pivot that to to, to weaponized migration. Um, you know, David and I, we've worked a lot on, on Venezuela in this in this regard. And, and there's these indictments, the indictment on Nicolas Maduro, the indictments on Diosdado Cabello, the indictments on actually folks that are currently uh, incarcerated right now uh, undergoing trial, uh, uh, Chavista dissidents. If you read that indictment clearly, at least this is the accusation presented by the Department of Justice. The accusation goes beyond just saying that these uh, Venezuelan government officials were trafficking drugs and laundering money into the United States. It said they did this in a concerted effort in a strategy to flood the United States with cocaine, to bring so much cocaine into the United States that essentially it goes to the fabric, the core fabric of society, much like fentanyl is doing, and it divides families, it creates divorces, it creates all kinds of social problems, it drives up depression, and you know all the effects that the, the psychological. I'm not a, a therapist or anything, or, <laughs> or, or but you know these have effects on on, on individuals and in, in their psychologies, and obviously that has effects on their families and on society. But let me go to this. So so. You, how can you weaponize something that's you know already an illicit activity, but take it a step further and make it into something that actually begins to come at the core of the fabric of what it is in, to be free here in America? Let me start with you, David. I know we've worked a lot about this. Oh, well, I mean, there's there's so many different avenues at which you could do it. So I like to think of it as it depends on it depends on what level of uh, operation you're working at. So the lower level guys, you know, as we said, they're they're probably living uh, a luxurious life, uh, living on a mattress somewhere in, in a you know a broken down house. They're not they're not doing well, but uh, they're a useful tools. So they don't really have any concept of of weaponizing or flooding or anything like that. So much as they're probably addicted themselves, and uh, and the way they get their fix is by selling dope and trading it. And we see that a lot, and that. I tell that story because when you move to the top, if the goal of uh, the Maduro regime is in is to uh, destabilize American communities, that's that's where you start. 
you start by creating people who work for you that are also addicted to your product. And just that alone occupies local police for any number of disturbances, nuances, whatever you want to call it. It, it preoccupies the police for that. It, once that person, now that they have access to fentanyl, this same person, they're developing their own pills that have uh, no quality control, to say the least. So now you're you're encroaching on communities that might not interact with them through what looks to be an innocuous drug. And once they've taken that and they die from the, let's say the first time they've taken it, now you're now you're impacting a family. You quickly begin to see how, if strategically used, those narcotics can be uh, weaponized or used as a weapon to destabilize American communities. It's not that's a that's a a long sequence of events, but the point is it's not far fetched. If you, and, and when the DOG starts writing out and, and articulating, they're weaponizing these drugs. It makes sense to me who's sitting in our communities and seeing these things happen and talking to operators who I like the two for one. I like that. It, it is kind of a dual mindset that whatever, whatever kills the gringo, but also whatever brings us profit. We'll, we'll we like the profit, but we'll take, We'll take a dead gringo too. It, it doesn't matter. So when you're operating with people at that level, people who have a two to a dual mind about it, and then you have purposeful execution in strategy with narcotics, you can just see once they, once they line up just enough, you destabilize American communities uh, completely. And it, and it, there's no, there's no sense of uh of really loyalty organization um, you've seen clips and of these rust belt cities yeah, that are, absolutely. that are hit by these epidemics in it. And there's no sense to, to anything that's going on there. It's, it's hard to even fathom. Sergio. Well, I think first of all, let me, I want to make one correction. I, I, I mentioned those doses and grams. It's actually milligrams. So my, my bad. Uh, so getting back to what we were just discussing about the impact of drugs and the, the stability of the United States, this we're, we're down here at the tactical level, but let's take it up to the, to the strategic level. And there you start looking at what, to what purpose are, are we doing this? Or what purpose are these governments in the case of Venezuela and the Chinese wanting to do this? You know, the Chinese want to create an, you know, a reverse opium war in the case of, of Maduro, anything that can destabilize the United States is good for them. So what you want to do is you find something that damages American society. You find that drugs is one way. Another way is, the synergistic effect of not only the drugs, but when you start talking about human trafficking, that's a business that's about $150 billion worldwide. So a lot of it is coming to the United States because that's where the money is made. And there are some that argue that now human trafficking is making more money than drugs because it's a gift that keeps giving. Mm. They can keep a, they can keep a, a line on you so that you become an indentured servant in essence. And so when you look at, the way that cartels operate, they're always looking for what is my, the business model that's going to produce more money. And if you're looking at those people that are looking at the big pictures, how can we destabilize the United States by adding additional Americans or ad additional people to the United States? It's going to be very difficult to expel them once they're here. So at some point, they're going to become voting Americans and who was it that got them here in the first place? So we're looking at changing the dynamics of the United States from a more free society to one that is more government controlled. And you can see that in the way that 
you have political parties here taking advantage of the centralization of power. I mean, you, you have to add to that some of the restrictions that have come under COVID, the way that that's being managed, because what you want to do is have control over society. And you look at all of these synergistic effects. Not only are you looking at the drugs, you're looking at the human trafficking, you're taking advantage of a Chinese lab caused disaster. You know, that, what, what that does is it gives those countries an idea of, okay, we were successful in unleashing this virus on the world. What happens the next time that they want to unleash something else? We already know how people react. You can shut everything down. And what that does is it destabilizes pretty much the entire world, but the United States in particular, because this is a free country. And what we're seeing is our freedoms being taken away. And the more people that come in, the, the less we have rule of law, the less it is that we're able to maintain the traditions of this country. And this is the biggest concern that I have is seeing all of this happen at such a rapid pace because this whole business of, of, of drug trafficking, I remember General Kelly, when he was the commander of Southcom back in 2014, was talking about the horrible deaths that were occurring to drug overdoses at that time, 40,000. We've more than doubled that since 2014. And, you know, DEA's got all the statistics. I mean, they can tell us all about how that's just keeping the, the, on the increase. And the lethality of some of these, um, these drugs is, is horrible. And, and, you know, the DEA explained this to me. You have all these creative people that can come up with different recipes for fentanyl. And they're always one step ahead of the law. They'll say, okay, the law says you, you can have these CHs and those arranged this way, but not that way. And there's always this cat and mouse game that's being played. We've gone from a paradigm where it was Bonnie and Clyde. You know, you put the stuff in the trunk of the car and you take it point, from point A to point B and then you get paid for it and so forth. With fentanyl and all these synthetic drugs, what you're doing now is, is bringing it up to a whole different level. You've gone from Bonnie and Clyde to the matrix where you're being paid in cryptocurrencies where you're guaranteed delivery because something that is this big is as effective as something that's this big. Yeah. So what I, what I want to do is I want to take this. So, so um, let me say one thing on the Venezuela thing, because, you know, obviously I spent a lot of time working on that problem set as well. And what I've looked at it is, you know, we got to think about this in terms of networks and that's, uh, you know, how these things tend to operate. And, you know, the concept in DOD that, that's been uh, utilized quite a bit to look at these networks is the concept of threat convergence. And so you have uh, different kinds of threats, including proliferators, uh, arms traffickers, drug traffickers, uh, terrorist networks that start to converge, but they don't converge because of they have the same objectives necessarily, but they converge because they have the same logistics and, and the same people that move the money. Just put it very bluntly, very simply, if you're an accountant for Sinaloa cartel in Mexico and then Mexico wants to do a money laundering operation, you're probably a good candidate to be accountant for Hezbollah as well. So these build this basically these uh, logistical networks that some that basically start to take over countries because the illicit economies become so big with all these different human trafficking, drug trafficking, uh, human smuggling, and all these different illicit activities that they start to overtake this. And I think that in the case of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez understood that. He understood the use and deployment of networks. He understood that drug networks can also have a dual function 
as almost like an intelligence network. So he could have a back door to be able to listen into certain conversations in countries. Uh, and so I think that that, that network approach is, is, is essentially what we're looking at. And in that, I want to uh, bring in the, con- the discussion about terrorism and, and potential terrorists coming through our southern border, because this is something that's taboo, right? No, no, nobody really wants to talk about it. Definitely this administration doesn't want to talk about it, but no really administration ever want to openly talk about it. They have this term, uh, what's it, the special interest aliens, or I think that's what it used to be called. I don't know. I think they might have changed the term, but SIAs are essentially uh, irregular migrants that come from a collection of countries, usually about 35 countries in the world that have a high density of terrorist presence. So most of these countries are in the Middle East, they're in Africa, uh, they're in South Asia. I'm going to read you a case that I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with. This is this happened just a few weeks ago. And this is something that was always kind of, in my case, in the work that I've done, one of the things I was most worried about. Uh, this is a case in Detroit. You know, this came out of Michigan where uh, the headlines, uh, it, is, th- is this Venezuelan in Metro Detroit an asylum seeker or suspected terrorist? It was reported on by a, a journalist named Charlie De Leduff. And what Charlie De Leduff reports in this article that he reported on in Deadline Detroit, I guess a local newspaper, local outlet, he talks about a gentleman named Izam Bazi. Izam Bazi is a Venezuelan of Lebanese origin that was caught swimming across the Rio Grande, literally swam across the Rio Grande and presented himself before immigration authorities. said, I'm looking to seek asylum. Many Venezuelans have obviously sought asylum. I think Venezuela is the number one country that has seeked asylum in the United States. Uh, he was then, you know, obviously put in a detention center to be wait for his ability to go before a judge and, and, and plead his asylum case. And then he was released last November, supposedly because of COVID, because he said he was an individual that had a high what do they call it, comorbidities. He had, he had a high density. If he gets COVID, he might have a hard time. Uh, by the way, his comorbidity apparently was he was overweight. So it wasn't like he was like, he's like, I'm fat and I need to get out of jail. And then apparently something happened and this in the article doesn't go into detail, but it said that um, he, a call came up from DOJ or just this call from Washington and he was released because of this COVID claim. And then afterward, we find out that he was pinged because he was on the terror watch list. And that's weird to me, right? To have someone that's on a terror watch. One, how would the people in, in, in you know, the cut that you know were interviewing him at the border, would, they would know that he, well, they should know, I think, that he, he was on a terror watch list and that this individual, let me see, in fact, I'll read a quote from the article. In fact, the FBI's terrorist screening center, which maintains the list, will not confirm or deny whether an individual is even on it. So it's very likely that Bazi does not know he is on the terror list until now. Bazi, according to the documents, is, is described as a person with high derogatory information with ties to an unspecified terror group. Now, coming from Venezuela of Lebanese descent, I think we can safely assume we know which terror group that likely is. But I use this as kind of an anecdote to say this is a bigger problem with the gotaways. It's not just, I mean, the, the drug trafficking problem is huge. But on top of that, we have a phenomenon of individuals that are coming through that could have... Um, just more direct motives of killing gringos in mind. Uh, I don't, I don't, let me start with you, Derek. What do you, what do you think about this case? Or what do you think about that, that specific problem? You probably worked a bunch of these cases in the DA. What are you doing looking at drugs, but you run into terrorists? Yeah, I mean, that one caught my attention as well. Very odd circumstances. He's on the terror watch list and you, you're cutting him loose because he's got COVID or whatever. But as you know, because we've testified together, my eyes were opened up big time when I saw the connectivity between Hezbollah 
and the Mexican cartels and the multi-billion dollar money laundering and drug trafficking, you know, sales, you know, moving used cars to support this unbelievable trade-based money laundering network around the world. This is the Project Cassandra. Yeah, right? Project Cassandra and all so the money. You, you, you were in, you were overseeing that case. Correct? Right, right. So Project Cassandra is very, very well-known initiative by U.S. law enforcement, DEA. And when I used to run the Special Operations Division, we had a counter-narco-terrorism operations section that focused on this with DOD, Intel community, other agencies. But it was mind-boggling because one, one guy, Amin Juma, was indicted in the Eastern District of Virginia for moving the proceeds of 85,000 kilograms of cocaine and they had a scheme where they were moving about $200 million a month, okay, from the sale of used cars and other illegal activity. But it was all helping to fund Hezbollah and their global radical effort. Now, what I have learned in my time at the DEA is that as President Obama and all the other presidents have said, okay, and I go back even to that time, that the terrorists are relying and increasingly more now on the the criminal activities around the world because they need cash to operate. Mm. So drug trafficking, human smuggling, counterfeiting, right? Arms trafficking is generating billions and billions of dollars. It's easy cash. That's why, you know, in Africa, you have AQAP, you know, elements moving cocaine shipments, right? We have Yemenis uh, suspected terrorists involved with money laundering. It's because they, they need money to operate. Whatever their initiative is, whatever their goal is, they need the cash. You know, you can't pay corrupt military officials with a suitcase. I mean, with a Visa or a MasterCard, you need cash, suitcase of cash. And that's what's going on. And there's so much money, but these cases, there's always overlap. No, I, I, and what I remember why DOD specifically was so interested in working with you guys at SOD at DEA, was be, in that specific case, Ayman Juman, the other Hezbollah ties to narcotics in Latin America, was because that uh, money, that they're making in Latin America by working with the drug cartels was going to pay for IEDs that were going in Iraq yes. by the IRGC Absolutely. that were going out to kill American soldiers. And weapons too in Syria, right? Yes. Because as these conflicts became more and more expensive and they had so many, Iran was not given, as you know, you're the mm -hmm. expert, was not given the same levels of funding. And even if they did, they needed more money. Yeah, they were sanctioned. They were yeah, sanctioned. they were sanctioned, so they didn't have the cash flow. So they realized that by opening up the Lebanese-Canadian bank operation and money was able to flow through worldwide, right back into corresponding accounts in America to support these used car businesses, they were... That's the other thing, Joe. To this day, it still makes me sad that we identified about 300 used car businesses in America but we only were able to put 30 of those businesses in the U.S. attorney's complaint because we mm. couldn't get the interagency cooperation because you have the silos between each agency on crime and terror when it's this massive network so you, you, you of bad guys. You got 30 guys. out of 300? Yeah. And, even, yeah and, and you know what? Even on Jim Comey's last, my last day on my job in SOD, I briefed him and I said, Mr. Comey, why don't you ask you know, the FBI guys in the counterterrorism division, what are they doing about these other 270 businesses? They're still operating. Mm -hmm. So they get the money from Lebanon. They buy the cars here in America. They ship the cars on Hezbollah shipping companies back to Africa. They sell the cars. They make a profit. And then the, the pot of money just keeps accumulating. And then monies go back to, to support Hezbollah. So I understand some of these car, used car dealerships were in, were in North Carolina. Were in All Mich over the Michigan. country. Yeah, yeah. Hundreds of them. You know, Michigan. You Michigan. talk about Michigan. So, you know, where this guy went, this Venezuelan, he went to 
It's a hub of money laundering. Dearborn, Michigan. Yeah, that's the hub. We we, we can go figure where he's he's I mean, Joe, we had cases where we had on intercepts where they were talking about picking up the money because Hezbollah needs the money down there in the conflict. And I think one of the things that Iran, I think, learned from this oil ordeal is it doesn't matter whether now at this point, it doesn't matter whether they're sanctioned or they're not sanctioned. They always need this as a backup. This has got to always be a backup because if if sanctions do get applied or pressure, and what sanctions did more than anything to Iran, not just limit their financial resource, what it did is it stopped their ability to use financial pipelines. So they couldn't use traditional uh, payment structures to be able to move money. So they really had to go through illicit structures. And that's where the drug trafficking and Hezbollah's connections to the cartels became uh, very big. So David, let me go with you a little bit and then we'll get Sergio in on the terrorist angle. What is, is there a heightened concern? I mean, this guy swam the Rio Grande, right? So he went to, t- how does that happen actually? And there's there a heightened concern of uh, some of these gotaways being uh, suspected terrorists coming, coming into this country. Oh yeah. <clears throat> That's always the topic of conversation. What nobody planned on was a gentleman flying from England showing up at a synagogue in Colleyville, which is our jurisdiction, and somehow acquiring a weapon and holding people hostage. Uh, so while everyone was focused on the southern border, we had some fool who was able to fly through what was should be one of the most secure routes through uh, through uh, terminals and, and on an aircraft who was on a watch list. And he ends up at, at a college. By the way, that synagogue, I pass it all the time, uh, it's in a, a urban or excuse me, a residential area. You'd have to go find it. You don't mm-hmm. just drive by and pick a synagogue. That's the one you don't, you, you literally come around the corner and it's in the middle of a residential neighborhood. <laughs> so I happened to be at Disney when that happened and I'm getting phone calls and I'm sitting in line with a, you know, a Mickey yeah, Mouse a Dis- a, a ice cream <laughs> sandwich outside of space mountain going, I, I can't help you, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but when they said it was there, I went, no, that can't be right. Mm. There would be no way that that's the it takes too much reconnaissance. That's the most out of the way synagogue. Anyway, the whole point being, while all eyes are in Southern border, that happens. So um, I, I use that illustration to say, if you think that was easy, can I please have your attention on the Southern border, which says that uh, to say that people are concerned, I think we're kind of past the concern. Now it's more, who has crossed and where are they at? Mm. That's really the the concern. And Reacting instead of being proactive, we're going to have to react now. And now, now you're trying to go to find those places where they're likely operating. I mean, that's the best you can do. Maybe if you have some car dealerships in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, that may help narrow down where we can look. But the idea now, if, at least in, in the Intel world, is uh, on a local level, we've moved past the worry and fear. It's it's They've crossed over. Where are they at and what would be their intention would it be to attack would it be to build financial networks texas is a big hub for for uh specifically islamist mm. raising funds for activity overseas any, any particular group or, or just general uh it's well we run the gamut the holy land foundation if you remember that the case, brotherhood yeah that was yeah muslim brotherhood who are who are tied in with hamas so that, that's probably the the major two that operate there. Right. Um, the uh, this Colleyville guy, I, I worked with a, a group who has found some uh, digital connections to the Council of Islamic Relations and and some of their operations online to 
specifically engage with this female who's who's locked up. So, so there's there's a lot of financial networks there. So it, it really comes down to what is the what's their local intention. And uh, so we move past fear so much as where are they at and what's their intent. Uh, one quick one quick thing on that. So in Texas, a couple of years ago, the DEA arrested a guy named Abdullah El Haj. He's the son of Wadi El Haj, the mastermind for the uh, Nairobi, Nairobi yeah, bombings, right? And this guy is living in America, in Texas. His family, his mother was on the front page, I think Newsweek or Time, married to Al-Qaeda. And he was involved with selling K2 and Spice, the synthetic drugs coming from China, in Texas. Mm. And we never proved, there's not evidence that I'm aware of that he was sending money back to support the <laughs> radicals. But his father was in jail for this massive terrorist plot, right? Or actually not a plot. No, he they, had, they carried it out. Carried out. Yeah. And so there, he's exactly right. There's this, this, this fundraising activity. We're seeing a lot of these Yemeni kids that are all over our country running these bodegas and gas stations and supermarkets. And we've seen millions of dollars going back to Yemen to support the radical efforts in Yemen. And we know that, you know, there's guys that were running the universities, training the Houthis, the Houthis. The Houthis yeah. and helping them radicalize, but they need cash to operate. And it's, again, the criminal activities in America. A lot of these bodegas, by the way, and I have a paper, I want to share it with you. Yeah, sure. I have a paper that I, that I did on, like, a lot of these bodegas and gas stations, they're, they're run like mini crime centers. They're not just involved in selling, like, legitimate goods. They're doing illegal cigarette trafficking. They're doing K2 spice. They're doing the EBT fraud. So you know what a big one is now, right? They no. walk in with their $100 welfare card. They give it to the store owner who's from Yemen. He provides them $50 in cash for the $100 card. He goes out to Costco with the $100 card and gets $100 in legitimate goods. <laughs> so he's doubling Clever. his money, doubling his money. But uh -huh. then, but what's happening, Joe, is then all that criminal money is commingled with the legitimate sales of cigarettes and water and diapers and everything else. And then the money is being sent back to Yemen to support the radical efforts. And this is on social media. Hezbollah is bragging about their global fundraising mm. and it's all through the illicit activity in America, in our backyard. So Texas, I'm glad he, he mentioned that because it's true, we, we saw that. Let me bring Sergio in on this. So obviously at DOD, you worked a lot of these issues in terms of, uh, you know, our military tends to be also one of the front lines, especially Southcom when it comes to the fight on drugs and terrorists that are coming through our Southern border. Um, Take us from your perspective. How do you well, as Derek has pointed out, this is an interagency process. <clears throat> There's obviously concerns that we have about terrorists coming into the United States because we're going to face them in the battlefield. And so we want to make sure that they don't come into the United States and we have to fight them here. So there's different agencies involved in tracking who these people are. HSI is in it. FBI is in it. CIA is in it. Every, we, we all keep an eye on those particular people. And when the border was... Uh, under the Trump administration, more regulated and more controlled, we were still getting information about people coming across. And I don't want to get into numbers, but we knew that there were people coming because we kept catching them. We had worked with our partners. Our partners had the mechanisms in place, the hardware and the software, so that we could keep an eye on who's coming and going. And if you'll recall, we talked previously about in, back in the day before uh, the Migrants were coming straight into Mexico by flights from all over the world. Um, they would come into Brazil, and then from Brazil, they'd go to Ecuador, and from Ecuador, they'd come up north, and in many cases, by buses or just walking. Now that it's so much easier, and now that you've got these getaways, we don't know who's here. 
We have no idea. We do know that many of these people come across in camouflage outfits so they can't be spotted. So while the CBP is tied up to their eyeballs, getting these massive waves of humanity where they have to process people in, there's no one out running patrols. So what that does is from a terrorist perspective is that we know for a fact that many have come through. We don't know the exact numbers, but if you're not watching and the rest of the world is seeing this, they're going to take advantage and they're going to send people here. There are groups already in the United States. When they're going to act uh, is, is dependent on, on, on world activities and world affairs and how well connected they are back to their networks uh, wherever they're coming from. But they're here. That's, no, that's, a, that's a given. And I had this, this conversation with a <clears throat> former director of CVP Holman who was, was giving us some numbers. And they're, they're north of 1,000 and actually it's several thousand. So what we're looking at is an uncontrolled border uh, and it's just a matter of time before these people act. Do we know where they are? No, because if you're busy processing those that are coming in and that are turning themselves in, everybody else is coming through. And oh, by the way, you know, when we talk about the drugs, well, there's some, there's now you're talking about thousands of people. You only have to allow in a few hundred commingled over a period of time. As the, as time progresses, you're going to get into the thousands. But what you also have is, the drug flows that are coming in with the getaways or that the cartels are more able to affect their networks to be able to get people in. So this thing is just multiplying. It's more synergistic. It's, it's, it's a, a multifaceted threat that we have to take a look at. But the terrorists is one of those things that does bother me. It's one of those things, you know, you always talk about what keeps you up at night. That's, that's one of them because we already know that, they're willing to do some pretty bad things. I mean, you saw what they did in, on 9-11. What happens if they're able to do something of, on a greater scale? Let me, go to, let me go to Derek. Derek, so I think you've been one of the most vocal people uh, on, on, in public, uh, either through testifying or, or talking to news outlets. You know, how, how bad is this going to get? How do, you, how do you see this? Because obviously we have an election this year in terms of the congressional election. Hopefully there's congressmen that become, make this more of an important issue uh, in the country. I think there's, there is some that are definitely doing so. Uh, and then we have a presidential election in 2024, but can it wait uh, that long? I mean, this thing is getting really out of hand. Well, first of all, I have said publicly, and I really believe it, it's no longer a red or a blue issue. It's a red, white, and blue issue. Everybody has to unite on this. You can't be political when it comes to destroying our future generation. And so another concern that I have, which is well underreported, is some of the advanced technologies now that the cartels are using on the border, like the drones, drones that are yeah. in our country filming and, and watching surveillance so they can move the migrants in and they can make more money. And then some of the recent, um, you know, media, um, you know, videos on the dropping of the C4 explosives on the other cartels or the IEDs they're using to blow up roads right? The, the Jalisco generation and Sinaloa are using these IEDs and these military style weapons and the tanks and all of that. But it's right on our border. So suppose they want to use some C4 explosives on our border patrol. Like, is anybody like going to deal with that? Like, so it's a lot of these things, but going back to the migrant, massive migrant crisis, I mean, Rodney Scott and Tom Holman and these guys, 150 countries. It's not just Central American mm -hmm. countries. You guys know that. Yeah. But the public doesn't understand the magnitude of that. And they're all over our country. When you talk about the migrants, 
what nobody's really talking about, when you have an open border, the Mexican cartels are putting their command and control operatives in our cities throughout America. When they, like, for example, they had a big record-breaking methamphetamine lab in Atlanta, Georgia, a few months ago. It was an actual production lab in Atlanta. 1,600 pounds of, of meth was seized. They're all illegals that are running this, hmm. right? So, and then so, the- and So it's labor, the drug, the drug traffickers are, are recruiting their own labor. Yeah, and, and exactly. Them. And then they're dumping the, the poisonous, uh, you know, toxic waste in the ground and everything. So mm -hmm. you don't hear any of these- Environmental concerns. Environmental, the, the, the mm -hmm. people that are, you know, screaming and yelling about the environmental concerns. But it's just getting worse. I've been tracking very closely with the families. So, so I'm at the grassroots and- a lot of these families are just devastated because a they had no idea what fentanyl was. There's no there's no public service announcements. One of the things I was saying on national news this week is like, just think about this. You have a sweetener. It's one gram that could kill 500 people. That little the little uh, sweetener bag, right? Mm -hmm. And you look at the Super Bowl that's coming up next weekend. Mm -hmm. That's 70,000 fans. A Super Bowl stadium and a half is how many Americans are dying every year. A 787 Dreamliner 9 that's flying, if it crashed every day, it'd be 275 dead people. That's what's happening every day with the drugs. And it's a good way to look at it. And I mean, this it's is not a good way, but it's, you know, a Super Bowl stadium, basically. Right. And another thing I want to say, and, and this is not meant to be derogatory or anything like that, but it's no longer overdoses. It's fentanyl murders and fentanyl poisonings. And the public has to look at it a little differently because a lot you of the- could die off the first, the first hit. Right. Yeah. And public, uh, the, you know, they think uh, overdose, uh, the kid shouldn't have been using drugs. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? With the COVID world, social anxiety, all of the isolation, wearing masks to school, right? These kids see mommy and dad are taking a legitimate Xanax pill. So they go online on Snapchat, social media, they, they buy a pill, they, they're dead. And this is happening everywhere. I, I know because I deal with them. So it, it's getting progressively worse. Just look at his stats. San Diego recently reported 1,300% increase in fentanyl deaths in a five-year period. Uh, the sheriff's out in Orange County, it was 1,067% uh, increase. Texas, the Texas CBP, the eight POEs, they reported 1,066% increase in fentanyl seizures from last year. You look at the overall CBP numbers, 11,201 pounds last year of fentanyl. Do the math. Times that by 226,000 per pound that are going to die if it's pure fentanyl. Look at the DEA's recent reports. 20,400 pills of fake, uh, you know, oxy pills were seized. What, what, what are your friends in the DEA saying? Because, I mean, they- Disaster. It's a disaster. The morale's going down. They're losing a lot of the uh, experienced people because people can't comprehend, like, why isn't this a priority? Where's the sense of urgency? And it's really unbelievable. The, the one stat that you need to know, I don't know if you saw it, but the DEA lab did an analysis that 40% of the pills that they analyze contain a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl. So what does that mean? 20 million times 40%, do the math. So law enforcement's doing an awesome job saving lives every day, but it's spreading throughout America. Phoenix DEA, here's a good stat for you, because this is what I always like to use to explain it. In 2015, the Phoenix DEA seized zero pills, fake pills, none. They didn't have them at that time, or they didn't seize them. In 2021, it's over 10 million, just from DEA Phoenix. Mm. On one day in December, they seized 1.7 million of these fake pills. In Phoenix- and like he said before, 
It goes to Phoenix, Arizona, and then it's shotgunned everywhere in America. And these poor kids are dropping left and right, and it's going to continue. So just focusing on the drugs. Forget about all the other stuff, the terrorists and everything. The drugs, like I say, it's a chemical weapon attack. It's a weapon of mass destruction as far as I'm concerned. Let me ask you this. And Sergio would know better than me. He was in the military, and he knows this area. If there was one kilo of some biological weapon right over the border in Juarez, and, and Northcom and Southcom and SOCOM had information, don't you think the U.S. government would be much more aggressive? Yep. So then why, if there's thousands of pounds, do you guys see the lab that they hit in Sinaloa, October 28th? The lab they hit, they said, the AP report said, that the lab that they hit, besides seizing you know, a couple hundred pounds of fentanyl, was producing 70 million pills at a month, wow. I think it was, yeah. of fake pills. One lab. So the question is, for the experts that have this other experience, why are we not hitting these production labs with the capabilities that we have? Why are we not working with the Mexican and well, stopping that production? Actually, I, I, that makes me, I have a question for Sergio on that, because where's the Mexican government on this? Because Andres Manuel López Obrador, the president of Mexico, I mean, is he is he taking this serious, or or, or what what what's happening in Mexico? We had really good cooperation with the previous government. Peña Nieto was he had his quirks, but he was working significantly more cooperatively with us. Uh, López Obrador is not as cooperative. You saw what happened with the way they treated the DEA. Uh, and Chapo's after, kid when they grabbed him. And so, yeah. Well, right. they, Hugs for thugs well, is the got, policy. They got the defense minister too, right? The former defense oh, minister. Oh, yeah. That's another whole story yeah. we could talk about. So, but just getting back to what you were saying about Chapo's mother, he goes to Durango, he visits with her, and then they negotiate fixing a road that basically gives freer access out of the, out of the, uh, the triangle where you have the three states that produce the, the opium poppy. Uh, and he is talking about what a nice lady she is. And so it doesn't give a good impression when you've got the president of Mexico going over and meeting with Chapo Guzman's mother. Mm -hmm. So this is, he doesn't take it nearly as seriously as, as uh, he should. Uh, I'm not so sure. The level of cooperation we've gotten from them is, is there, but not at the levels that we had before. And obviously it can always get better and it needs to get better because of all the things that we've just described. Well, why don't we why don't we touch on that a little bit because that's one of these that shocked a lot of folks here. Uh, maybe folks in the DA were more more privy to this, but you know we had a, a former defense minister, a prestigious military officer because he was actually decorated, uh, well decorated. Also, he won an award from the United States from DOD, and uh, he got arrested if, I, if I'm not mistaken for out of Los Angeles uh, for drug trafficking. But then Mexico literally almost said that we're going to cut cooperation with the United States and let you give them back. And, and we did. And they dismissed the charges. They yeah. sent them back. And then it got worse. The president of Mexico was then making claims that DEA fabricated the evidence to get the charges in the Eastern District of New York. But that wasn't obviously the case. There was a strong case against them. And the DEA agents were humiliated. Because that's what you got to do. You got to attack the highest level of the so corruption. What do, you, what do you think happened there? What, I mean, how did this... It's a good question. We're still speculating, but I mean, Attorney General Barr is the one that cut the deal. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of theories about it. You know, cooperation is one theory, uh, maybe because of the way it was handled with the State Department in country and it wasn't done correctly, the, you know, the DEA notifications. There's a lot of different speculation. But the reality is, is that 
Look, the, the, the former uh, secretary of uh, public safety, he's been arrested in America. Did you see some of those allegations made yeah. at the Chapo Guzman trial? I did, I did. On the corruption, you know, on the millions of dollars paid to all these corrupt officials. But we're, we're dancing around that, and it goes back to America first. When the kids are dying at the levels right now that we're seeing, somebody's got to stand up and look out for the kids before these other corrupt governments and these officials around the world. And it's getting worse, in my opinion, from and, what I've seen. And understanding that the, the narcotics are, these aren't habitual users who are at the end of their rope and they just right. happen to be That's right. dying at, at abnormal levels because there's, a lot of people think that the uh, the access to drugs has increased, therefore the overdoses are going to increase because habitual users are, are just... Uh, flooded with the amount of dope that they can get. And that's just not the case. The overdoses are, are, uh, are, and I wish I had a statistic that broke down first time users, death, second time users, death, habitual users, death. And I can almost tell you from anecdotally that anywhere from 20 to 40% are going to be people who are in the quote unquote, what we might call an experimentation phase who are dying. That's right. And yeah. when, and so when that becomes the case, then you have to ask yourself, why? Why would they move? Why would 70 million pills be used knowing that you're going to kill anywhere from 20 to 30% of your customers? Well, why would the, that be a successful strategy? I, and then you, the, so to me, it goes up all the way to the story with, with Barr dismissing charges. You start to really question how much power there is and at what point the federal government has said, well, this is a weapon and we have to under ask ourselves why, why, why would they choose to use this as a weapon? How much power is there behind this, um, behind this strategy? Well, one of the questions I asked is why would somebody that wants to make a product or wants to make a profit allow the customers to die? And the answer was, it's simple. There's, there's a lot more where that came from. And so this is the this is the cynical attitude that these people take on how they sell the drugs. They figure this product will get you addicted much more quickly. You're going to be in need of the drug. We're going to give it to you, and then we're going to come up with a way of of marketing this thing so that more people use it. And all you got to do is get to using it a few times. You get addicted, and now you got a customer. And if that customer dies, find some more to addict. And, and, and I, then we get back to the whole other issue about making this a, a reverse opium war. I, I start to wonder if, if some of these uh, manufacturers and dealers at, at a, let's say a mid level in the cartels. And if they, if they knew what kind of effect this would have, I, I just, I start to wonder looking at, uh, for example, having talked to uh, heroin is, is really the worst kind of drug. At least what we're seeing from especially when you start adding fent fentanyl and, um, when COVID hit, the price of methamphetamine in Dallas-Fort Worth skyrocketed because they couldn't get it over the border. The price of heroin didn't fluctuate much at all. Mm. So I began asking the question, why is that? And they said, well, heroin's a, a faithful drug, they call it. <laughs> so once we got you hooked on heroin, that's it. You, don't, you'll, you'll, you will always seek me out. You won't turn me in. And it's true. I'll talk to heroin dealers and users, and they won't turn in their dealer because they don't want to get sick. You will add fentanyl to that, and the... Uh, the consequences become tragic, but uh, but it doesn't stop the the movement of heroin, and, and so there's without the price fluctuation and with the effects of fentanyl how, as it's uh, used in heroin, 
there's just a bunch of these trends that I, I start to wonder, did they understand? Do they understand how deadly it is and how there could eventually impact their profits? I, I just, I don't so, know. And I, 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 I don't think these people that you, you have to understand that people that are providing these drugs don't care. They really it's do all not about care. the money, and it's it's about money. And if you die well, that's just cost of doing business. They're, they're, they're doing. At what business. point does it become the cost? Of, I guess that's. I would love to sit down with someone and go. At what point does the cost of doing business? And I start to wonder about immigration. Going back to that, is there a cons? Is there a forethought that the more money, the more people we move in the United States, they're creating users. The same dope that flows in is impacting these communities. I talked to uh, one individual, high-level uh, cartel member, and and I, he, you know, he said, "Whatever kills the gringo." And I said, "Well, you know, you're killing your own people too. Mexicans, Hispanics—they're taking it in Dallas Fort Worth just as much as any any you know white-blooded American." And he goes, "Yeah, yeah." So let me—I mean, I understand. So me, what? Let, let me touch on that. So, so I was the same gentleman I was talking to about the drug trafficking and and the the revenues that these cartels generate was telling me about how the cartels deal with people that are freelancers. Meaning if you try to bring a busload of illegal aliens into the United States and you're not doing it with the permission of the cartels and they catch you, you will, you will be taken out and they will, they'll take you on the desert and they'll kill you. Sometimes they'll take the load, meaning those migrants that these individuals are transporting and they'll, They'll say, okay, now you owe us, and then they'll get them across. If it's just a small group of people and if it's inconvenient for them, they'll just kill everybody. And they're finding many, many people that have started their own businesses end up in the desert dead. So there is no compunction by these organizations to kill people. They they don't not they they don't bat an eye at well, you know, for sure. People. I could yeah, definitely yeah. see that. These drug cartels are as Derek was saying is deadly or as murderers, as terrorists, or if not more. The, the, the Jalisco Nueva Generacion are the absolute worst. Those guys rule by terror. Yeah, we've seen the videos. So they have heavy armaments, military tactics. So what, what I'll say, just to kind of round this out, and we'll head toward the end of the, the, the podcast, what, what I'll say is that I think in today's day and age, right, in the world that we live in today, the globalized world where everything's interconnected, all these networks and facilitators, I think that the there there it's hard to have the full bulletproof smoking gun evidence to make these cases, and maybe you could find it if you do a thorough investigation. But just from an analytical perspective, and this is I kind of learned this by both looking at the Venezuela case and also looking at the caravans, and there is big powers that are manipulating a lot of these things. And what, like for example, in the Venezuela case, one of the biggest things that I've learned is that in the sense that the criminal groups don't want anarchy per se, right? They just want a government that they can co-opt and work with and be able to protect the illicit movement of their, of their goods and services. And in that sense, I think when I learned, what I learned about the caravans was the caravans wasn't about getting a bunch of uh, migrants across the Southern border. The, the caravans was actually about just clogging up the border so that the border gets uh, uh, overwhelmed, that the border gets weakened. And so if you combine those two elements, I think what we're looking at is we're looking at big powers that are looking, when I say big powers, I'm talking about Russia, Iran, China, these big global players that are enemies of, and adversaries of the United States to be able to use migration as a weapon that has multiple effects, as, as the effects of clogging the border, of weakening national sovereignty, of moving resources towards the borders that gotaways can increase on other sides of the border, pushing drugs in, pushing terrorists in. And, it, and in essence, what it does is it basically takes away your identity as a country. And, and I think that's the, that's the, at the heart of it, because mm -hmm. once 
incentives change in the illicit economies, overpower formal economies. And we're seeing this in some of the really border towns in, in Texas and in Arizona and other parts where the number one commodity is drugs. And that's the number one made way make business. You might've been a trucker for a company at one point, but you, you, you might get laid off COVID or whatever. Now you're going to be working for a drug cartel and you're making twice the money and not paying taxes. So that's the incentives are, are what drive human action. And I think that's what's happening. And so we're seeing this all around. And in some ways you even seen this in the case of Belarus and Poland and how they're pushing all those migrants into Poland. We saw this with the Syria case. So what we call this, and I think this is the big policy point for, for, for all of our listeners to, to really understand, we got to separate regular migration or even irregular illegal migration from a term that's called strategic engineered mass migration. That's not my term. That's actually a term that was coined by a professor from Tufts University, uh, Dr. Kelly Greenhill. She actually wrote a book called, uh, uh, was it weapons, instead of weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass migration. And what it basically means is that when you have migration that's, uh, deliberately induced and or manipulated to achieve political or geopolitical objectives. And I think that that's what we're seeing in today's day and age. We're seeing that with the Venezuelans going into South America and Colombia. We're seeing that with the Haitians. We're seeing that with the Central Americans. We're seeing that with the Belarusians. We're seeing that with the Syrians. And and at the heart of that concept is taking away a country's national sovereignty, which by doing that is you take away that rule of law. And I think that that's, that's in essence how big this challenge is. That's why we're doing this border wars. That's why we're going to dedicate pretty much, you know, all the time and resources that we have to tackle this from the border on up because it, it multitudes on all these other different issues as we've discussed today. A any last words from any yeah, of you guys let me, on let something? Me, let me just add on to what you just said. I think this is important just to give you an example. It's multifaceted, the motivations that some of these countries have toward bringing or, or providing more immigrants into the United States. But let's just look at Venezuela as an example. And Cuba, the benefit of having all these migrants come into the United States is also economic, the remittances. Mm -hmm. If you look at these countries that are falling apart, they don't have any money. I mean, if, if you were to pull the remittances out of Cuba, they, they would shrink and shrivel up. And, and, and President Trump started doing that. The Venezuelans have now lost conservatively 6 million people. The, the, the money that's generated by those that leave are helping keep Maduro afloat. Maduro has to come up with clap boxes for those true believers that wear the red shirts and go to the, the rallies. The people that have money, there's still some left in Venezuela. They're going to just continue to survive on their own. And those in the middle have to rely on remittances. And we're keeping them afloat because Maduro figured out, okay, inflation is going to kill me, so let's just make the, the national... Uh, currency, the dollar, the same thing in Cuba. And so in addition to all these other things we've mentioned, the economic factor and how they use that, manipulate that to stay afloat economically is coming out of the United States. David Derrick. Well, I, one thing I like to leave uh, a hopeful comment for any listeners <laughs> and I'll start with a negative and go to a positive. The negative when it comes to mass migration with drugs and otherwise really mass migration uh, or what was it? Strategic engineered, engineered mass migration in the United States, the way we're organized with States and federalism, the power that is in the state could greatly affect the rest of the nation. So I often stress that if you took out Texas and parts of California and Florida, you could have a greater impact than you ever would trying to attack DC or DHS or D. So the the local power we we 
we have local power, but we have local consequences. And I think mass migration, uh, when you begin to bog down just the state of Texas, you're impacting an economy that's larger than many countries. So there's a targeted effect, I think. I, I, I speculate on this, but I believe countries like Venezuela, they understand don't try to overwhelm the United States. Pick your states and overwhelm them, and you will you will slowly collapse the country as a whole. Kind of how they did in New York. Yeah. In many regards. Yeah. So, uh, and on a, on a hopeful note, the inverse is true for Americans. Local power, local control, local solutions. Your local government, your local folks matter. Too often. And we've talked about this with uh, with our with the state think tank. Based, yeah, the state is trying to localize national security issues, helping understand that what happens on a national level impacts you locally, and the solutions you come up with locally have an impact on the national level. So I always stress when I speak to groups locally, I say, don't ever forsake your role locally. Don't ever think that you're irrelevant and that your voice doesn't matter, because more often than not, local solutions are what get national attention. Not, not the reverse. And thankfully, we have a system where you have local power. You can actually make a difference. Other countries don't have that benefit. We do. So I encourage people, take action locally. If, if the problem seems too big on a national level, take action locally, improve your situation locally, and I guarantee that will have positive impact quickly. And my, my economics professor used to say there's macroeconomic problems but microeconomic solutions. So yeah. it kind of puts in that same framework. Derek, you get the last word Derek. What do you, what do you, what do you think about this? Anything last to say? I maybe want to live with a little bit of an optimist note that, you know, obviously we're still in the fight here and we're still going to be wrestling with this problem for, for months and years to come. Well, I try to be very optimistic because we have kids, we have friends that have kids, you know, we have grandkids or whatever. It's the future. It's about the future. We have to do everything we can I, I've luckily, over 30-something years, uh, been around the greatest American patriots, whether it's the law enforcement, state and local law enforcement, our military, our intelligence community. We have some really smart people. I'm hopeful that at some point they will actually not just write strategy papers and not just talk about the problems, put this powerful force to action and keep it simple. Right now, like I said, there's a chemical weapon attack against our country. Let's stand up for the families that are being destroyed and go do whatever has to be done to protect the citizens. I feel that that's going to happen. It's unfortunately taking too long, but we need some bold leaders. And that's kind of what's not, you know, people are more concerned about their retirement jobs than standing up for what's right for the citizens. And so we're going to continue to, you know, put the pressure on them. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan had the saying, if you can't get them to see the light, make them feel the heat. <laughs> so you want to be the president, you want to be the attorney general, you want to be the secretary of defense. There's a lot more than just having a nice caravan and protection details. You have to protect the people in the country. If you're not protecting the people, then what do we have? And the rule of law. I like that whole conversation about the rule of law because it's very upsetting as somebody that dedicated their lives. And my father dedicated his life. My brother lost his life fighting for the country that the rule of law is just being disintegrated here. You know, Tom Holman had a great comment and Tom Holman is a friend of mine. It's now legal to be illegally here. <laughs> like, just think about it. This isn't very complicated, but like it's unheard of. And we're facilitating the illegal migration by putting them on the planes. Like Sergio said in the middle of the night, dropping them off. 
But I'm going to remain optimistic because I think the the Patriots are going to stand up strong. And I agree with the local uh, concept as well because they, there's some powerful sheriffs and police out there and and we have some good Americans that are going to that are going to rise above it. And I can I can attest to, to Derek. Uh, not just wanted to talk talk, but walk the walk. I remember when we testified before the hearing, and and, and uh, one of the first things that Derek said before uh, a congressional committee, I think it was financial services in the House. He said, "I'm tired of these hearings. <laughs> I'm tired of this talking." Yeah, no, I I actually talked about you know how many more think tanks are going to write these exactly. papers. As a matter of fact, one last comment on that because you brought it up. So in 2011, we all sat around and we wrote the transnational crime strategy to help President Obama and the Attorney General Holder at the time to put together a comprehensive approach to go after the bad guys. By the way, if you read that report, it was beautifully done because a lot of good people, smart people put it together. Well, now I get a kick out of it 11 years later Joe Biden is signing an executive order. He's going to form a transnational crime council. It's the same council. report. It's, it's the, same, the same report. I saw that. It's the same so report. I would like to ask the president, when are you going to take that report and start holding people accountable to put this thing in action? Where's the operational implementation plan? No, we've, yeah, we've had that strategy since, as you mentioned, 2011. It's never been implemented really fully. And it's a good strategy. It's a good strategy. It's been put a lot of thought into it, but it's really just a piece of paper because no one's really put the resources, the time, and the leadership to make it happen. But first of all, let me just thank everybody. Let me thank you guys. It's awesome to have this conversation. We could have it for hours or more. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, to everyone watching, uh, be sure to like uh, uh, this video. Be sure, if you're watching it on YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, if you're hearing us on Apple or Google or Spotify, wherever you like to hear your podcast, subscribe to Border Wars, the podcast. We're going to be talking about this uh, just pretty much throughout the rest of this year. Unfortunately, I don't think the problem is going to be going away. But as I described, I think borders represent a lot more than than, than, than what most Americans even understand. It's, it's As Derek, as Sergio, as, as David mentioned, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. And at this point, our country's under assault. So we're going to be doing our best to make sure your ideas get out there. Thank you, guys. That was awesome. Thank we'll, you. We'll have the conversation again sometime soon. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to the Border Wars podcast and visit our website at securefreesociety.org. See you in the next episode.